Hello, my name is Chandler O'Leary. And my name is Johnny Hatch. Welcome to Bedside Business, a student-run podcast where we talk with physicians about how they use business principles to improve their lives and the lives of their patients. We believe that business is a tool physicians can use to help their patients fight against burnout and make the world a better place. We aim to explore all these topics and more. In this episode, we talk with Ethan Nakana. Ethan has earned both an MBA and a JD, which he used for years negotiating physician contracts on behalf of hospitals and hospital systems. Now Ethan sits on the other side of the table and negotiates on behalf of physicians. In this episode, we talk with Ethan about what physicians should consider during their contract negotiations, who will advocate for them, and where they can turn for help. We first heard about Ethan and his business, Rocky Mountain Physician Agency, on the Born Connect podcast. You can learn more about Ethan's story there or on his Instagram page, at Physician Agency. Hope you enjoy. So first off, we would love to hear a little bit about you, how you got involved in healthcare, what kind of your background is. Can you tell us a little bit about that story? Yeah, of course. So just by way of background, my mom is a physician, so this this is my feeble attempt at staying in the family business in a way. Um, but more realistically, when I grew up, my mom always told me, get into medicine because you're always going to have a job. There's always going to be work. And I found out really early that my skills are not in the sciences and <laughs> mathematics. And so I figured I needed to find another path. And so my first job out of college, Johnny, was in a hospital as, a, as an HR intern doing uh, recruiting fairs and things like that. So that was the very beginning to what became uh, a little over a decade long career working inside of hospitals, which I absolutely love. And that was my preference for a really long time. So cool. So you started out right out of, you said it was right out of high school. You started working in the hospital. Sorry, right out of, right out of college. Oh, okay. so that was my first. Yeah. So that was my first uh, you know, what you might call your real job, so to speak. Uh, as far as real job, though, I was making 12 bucks an hour, and I had a 10-week internship, so I don't know if I would call that the real job, but but I had packed everything I owned into my car and drove from Tennessee to California, and I was going to make it work. So 10 weeks or not, I was going to make it work, and, and I did. I was really fortunate. So we actually heard about you first uh, from the Born um uh, the Born podcast, the Born Connect, I guess is what it's called. Um, yeah. And you, in that podcast, told a story about how you kind of transitioned from your work working inside of a hospital <laughs> to this new thing that you're doing now. Can you kind of quickly tell that story, how you got started doing what you're doing now? Yeah, Chandler, I'm glad you brought that up. That's my favorite story. Just about a year and a half ago, just a smidge before the pandemic, um, I was in a role, I had left uh, hospital operations, which I was doing supply chain, food and beverage, uh, and I was at director level there, which I really enjoyed. But I found that I was kind of solving the same problems more than once. And so I started to make an effort to, to transition out of operations into more strategy in, in the hospital setting. And so I made the move. I was really fortunate to have a senior executive who helped me get connected to the right team, made the move over to what we called innovation at the time. And I, like I said, I've been with the organization at that time for about 60 years um, through progressively, you know, increasing responsibility and leadership. Uh, and then six months into my new role, the department got closed. 
So, you know, I walk into HR on Friday afternoon and you, you know, that's not going to be a good conversation. And they say, Hey, next week you are effectively done. And I'll tell you, I'll be honest. I tell this all the time, but I, I was at a personal and professional low point. I felt worthless. And I, I say that to acknowledge that my identity and my self-worth was wrapped up in my salary and my job title. And as I started to navigate some of those feelings, I didn't fully have an appreciation for how much of myself I had put into this title and salary. And so I found myself grappling with identity after that experience. So I have a girlfriend who's a far better person than I am. And the week between losing my, you know, them telling me you're losing your job in the actual last day, she got me a massage. So I went to some chain, went to the chain and I was sitting in the, in the lobby and in the lobby on, on this table, there's this magazine it's here. We, it's called 5280, which it stands for 5,280 feet, which is a mile and also the altitude of, of Denver from sea level. So this magazine 5280 is about, about Denver, Colorado. And on the top, on the, the top cover, it was the issue of Colorado's top docs. And my mind started thinking, I was like, man, I wonder how much money these doctors make. I wonder if they know how much they should make. Who tells them how much? How do they know how much they should make? And it started this, this spiral. And so uh, I go into the massage, and I'm shaking the entire time. Because in my head, I'm thinking, I'm onto something, and I don't, I don't think there's an answer to it. So I get out of the massage when it's, when it's over. I, I wish I probably should have just left. I called my buddy, and I was yelling in the phone, why don't doctors have agents like athletes? And he said, huh, I, I see your point. So I called my mom. My mom was my second call. And I said, mom, who helped you negotiate your deals? Or how did you know how much money you should make in your deals? She said, he said, it was up to me. And if I had to get the data. I had to know what my number was. I had to take time away from practice to negotiate. And that got me thinking there's an opportunity here on two fronts. The first front is physicians don't receive training and education in business and uh, negotiation, which is why they lean on people like you, Johnny and Chandler, to provide that education, right? Because that's just not an, a, uh, an integral part of your formalized training. And so what I do now as part of my business is hugely educational. So I meet with residency programs all over the country. I am, actually I have Wright State Boonshaw School of Medicine tomorrow, um, to present to their residents, here's what you need to know about contracting when you when you go into negotiation. So the first front is on is education, and the second is advocacy. Is understanding that physicians, if they take time to negotiate a contract or do anything that is not caring for patients, they're not getting paid for that generally. And so it's taking time away from their revenue generating time. So if they can have someone like me, who not only is an expert at all things contractual and legal and all of that, but someone like me who has the time to dedicate to those con conversations, um, they find it very, very helpful because one, I know what I'm doing, and two, I have the time to do it for the docs, which I think they appreciate. So that's the so I you know that's kind of the the short story, the short version of the story. Um, I'll spare you some of the grisly details. Um, my my better half 
often tells me that when I, when I make it big, if that ever happens, that I'm going to write a book and she's going to write a companion book about what it was really hey. like. <laughs> I love that. That story made me laugh so hard when I was listening to it the first time. I just imagine you shaking in the massage table, you know, it cracked me up. I'm not exaggerating, Donnie. I was so, I, it was as if, it was as if like I had cracked the Rosetta stone and I was like, I yeah. gotta tell somebody. And it, yeah, it was so, it's so crazy. And look, I am, I am extremely animated in how I talk. And, and so, um, I'm telling the story exactly as it happened to me, man. It was so surreal. So Ethan, another question I wanted to ask, you mentioned you have this appointment tomorrow with the residency program. I, I wanted to understand kind of the business model you have set up. It sounds like for some people you contract with the residency program. So the program hires you to, to negotiate future contracts for their graduates, their residency graduates. Is that what I'm understanding? Yeah. So let's think about it think about it maybe in almost two distinct businesses in a sense, or maybe services. So my educational services, which are exactly what you just alluded to, that's pro bono. That's, you know, that's from the kindness of my heart in the respect that my view of this, Johnny, is my vision for, for RMPA is to help bring the power back to physicians when they go into negotiation. So if I were purely self-serving, yeah, I would just say, hire me and I'll do it for you. And then we'll, we'll do it that way. But my belief is that this is bigger than a business. This is bigger than RMPA. This is physicians getting to a place where they feel comfortable and confident when they go in to negotiate. I don't want every doctor to hire me. I want doctors to feel comfortable and confident when they go into the negotiation. They hire me because they know that that's something that I'm comfortable and confident doing, but I also want to give you those skills. So residency programs, I'll just tell you my, my approach is I just reach out to every residency program and say, hey, I'm willing to offer education for your residents. It's free. I don't charge anything. And I will give you the lowdown, the dirty. I'll tell you everything. I'll, and, and I'll just tell, I'll tell you guys, just for, for your audience, um, a buddy of mine is a contracting executive at a well-known hospital system that some of your um, listeners probably will work for one day. And when I was first building this, he was really the, the brain behind helping me build a strategy. And, and one of the things I asked him, I said, how do hospital executives see residents specifically? And he said, he said three things, which I'll share with you guys. He said, our goal with residents is to get them as busy as, as, busy as possible, as quickly as possible for as cheap as possible. So if that's what you're up against, do you think you're going to come in and get this fat deal because they're nice to you? No, that's, that's the stuff they do when you're in the room. The stuff they talk about when you're not in the room is the reality of it. And the reality of the situation, Johnny, is that executives are compensated by keeping physician salaries low. And what I mean by that is executives, CEOs, COOs, CFOs, they're in well, hospitals, they're incentivized to keep the cost of the organization low. So when you look at an income statement, they keep their operating costs low, and then they get a bonus if they hit certain performance metrics for their hospital. Well, what goes into those expenses is physician salaries. So they know if I pay Dr. Smith 10% more, that's going to cut into my expenses, and that's going to cut into my bonus. 
And those are the things that doctors just aren't aware of. And it's by no fault of their own. It's, there's just no way you would know that. But, have, you know, I spent 10 years behind enemy lines, so I know exactly what they're going to say before they say it to you. Yeah, this, this actually touches on an important point that I was thinking about uh, when we were preparing for this episode. Because you talked about how whenever you first thought about this idea, it just like hit you like it was something crazy that no one had thought of. And, you know, the next logical question from that is why has no one thought of this before? And I think that the reason no one's thought about it before is because of the changing physician dynamics. Like you used to have most of your physicians are self-employed. You don't have to advocate for yourself for a higher salary. You just pay yourself whatever you make, you know. But now that it's kind of transitioning to where there's business people making all of these decisions, the game has totally changed. Jenna, I don't know that I would have picked up on that. That's a really good observation. And I think the numbers work out to be 70% are employed and about 30% are, are self-employed on average nationally. Mm-hmm. But you bring up a really good point. You would have run your own business. You wouldn't have needed somebody. You wouldn't need to be a lawyer to set up your contracts, but you wouldn't have needed someone to negotiate your salary. Uh, that's a really, really solid point. I think you're, I think you're onto something there. I, I just wanted to follow up, Ethan. So when you, you offer free services to residency programs, essentially training their employees how to negotiate in the future once they graduate. And then if they like your service, they're like, you know, those principles Ethan taught were awesome. I want to use those, but I'm not confident in my own ability. I'm going to bring Ethan on to help me with this. How do you end up getting paid? It sounds like from what I've seen, it's the hospital that pays you. You contract with the hospital and the employee and explain how that works. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up again. Cause you asked me that the first time and I think I skipped it um, as it relates to the doctors who do hire me. So when doctors bring me on, there's a, a small retainer and that retainer goes to offset the, the, the work that I'm going to do for you, getting you to a contract. As you guys probably know, you know, contracts, depending on the size of the practice and single individual practice, uh, practitioner, the size of the entity, um, those contracts can take anywhere from three months to 12 months. And so making sure that the retainer is reflective of the work that's going to go into, you know, that runway um, until we get that, that doctor finally paid. So the way it works, there's, there's kind of two approaches. There's a renegotiation model and there's a, a new home model. The new home model is the more typical that I see. And, and what that means is a doctor will hire me and say, Ethan, and actually this happened last week, Ethan, I am on all productivity and I made nothing when ORs were shut down uh, for elective procedures during the pandemic. I need, to, I need some kind of a base, right, for a base salary. So that way when business goes down, I can still support my family and meet my bills and all of those things. So that doctor hires me, and then we go to his current organization, and we say, hey, we would love for you to take a look at Dr. Smith's contract and give him a small base or a reasonable base with a a performance incentive. The hospital will likely say, kick rocks, doctor signed it, we're not interested in having a conversation. So then what I do is I – is, and this is a a thing that I think is different from from what doctors have historically done is – I will then go to every one of your competitors in that same city, 
and say, do you feel the same way that Dr. Smith's current employer does about his contract? The answer is usually no, we don't. We'd love to have a conversation. So then I begin having a conversation with these other competitors in the market to find out where is the best fit for Dr. Smith's priorities. Now, what happens is Dr. Smith is still under his current contract, and now I come back and I say, hey, current employer, I understand that you felt like Dr. Smith was compensated fairly. I disagreed, as does your competitor. And then you come back with another offer, and the current employer is much more open to having a conversation about retaining Dr. Smith, which that situation is real and backwards. It is so, you know, why do doctors have to threaten to leave to get compensated? But anyway, okay, I digress. Back to your question, Johnny. So what we do is when we are going into that, into that relationship, the doctor will sign what I call a representation agreement. And that representation agreement effectively says our MPA, Rocky Mountain Physician Agency, is authorized to act on behalf of this doctor in all business matters uh, related to their employment. So the first thing we do is a physician intake, which is an interview, not that different from what you and I are doing today, but it's really primed to help understand the physician's personal and professional priorities. Not all physicians are motivated by money. Not all physicians are motivated by having a ton of free time. Not all physicians are as motivated by patient care. So how, how can we build a, how can we build a contract that meets your needs and, and fulfills your priorities personally and professionally. So up front, we agree on what a retainer is going to be. My fee is a percentage of the physician's first year compensation. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And it's a great model because as a physician going in, it's like, okay, I have a little fee up front. So that covers your costs. I want to provide for you because you're providing me a service. And then I know that you're incentivized to get me the highest salary possible because your compensation is tied into that as a percentage of my salary. And then you're not doing what Kevin or Mr. Wonderful does on Shark Tank, where it's like a lifelong royalty, you know, it's a year and then that goes away. And then, you know, years down the road, they can rehire you if they need a renegotiator. So I like that model quite a bit. Johnny, I always neglect, you guys, I'm so glad you guys are like picking up my blind spots. I always neglect to mention that I get paid one time. Right. So as, so let's just say, you know, doctor hires me, they get a raise. That raise is good for the length of their contract. They are going to get paid more money on an ongoing basis. I get paid one time. Right. So um, you're absolutely right. And, and that's one thing that I do try to call out when I talk with doctors. I just, I spaced it here. I should have mentioned it. Oh, no worries. I love that concept of incentives because that comes up over and over again in our interviews. And it's such a like, basic concept, but it's so easy to kind of totally forget about how those are motivating people's um, decisions. Mm-hmm. But let's talk a little bit about, so you do a lot of training. What if I was going to go in and negotiate with the hospital tomorrow for my salary? That's a really long ways off for me, but what advice do you normally kind of give, like a few high yield points that you give to residents? Yeah, good question. I think the 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 first advice I give all of all of the doctors I talk with is do unless there are some type of extenuating circumstances, don't only talk to one hospital. So you think about any time you have maybe bought a car or you bought some high end item, maybe a really nice TV or something. 
um, you didn't go to one dealership or one store to find the right price. You assume that there's probably other prices elsewhere. So we're conditioned to look look elsewhere. We do that through we do that for car insurance for for all of these things. And what I find with doctors when I talk with them early on is they talk about this idea of loyalty. And so that's the reason doctors tend to talk to one organization is they want to be loyal. And that loyalty is an idea that's propagated by the hospitals, right? Because they, it's like, here, play sports, play sports. So think about football, basketball, baseball, any professional sport. The player is usually on one of two sides of the coin. When the player is not happy with their compensation and wants to get paid, the player may say, I'd like a raise or for you to trade me to a team that's going to value me the way that I would like to be valued or the, the way the market says I should be valued. The team says, no, be loyal. Fans say, no, you need to be loyal to the team, right? So let's just say player in the NFL, player gets injured or players underperforming his contract and they get traded. And the player says, Hey, well, what about loyalty? Hey, it's a business, man. It's a business. You know, it's this duality that only disadvantages the player. And that same situation happens in medicine where doctors are loyal, which is a phenomenal thing until it gets taken advantage of. And when, in, in ways that it gets taken advantage of is, is having contracts with, that are way too long, have, I mean, long, long term, I mean, um, having contracts that, um, that are really restrictive from a, from a restrictive covenant or non-compete perspective, those are extremely uh, burdensome on the doctor because now it means when the doctor leaves their job, they also have to leave their home, they have to leave their city. Uh, so the first thing I tell doctors is always, always, always talk with more than one hospital. See the, look at the whole city or area of where you want to be and see who all of the players are. Now, if you're a doctor who is prioritizing academic medicine or community medicine or have some type of self-specialization, then of course, there's going to be natural considerations that you have to make about where you might be able to work. But if you are a family med, primary care, a doctor who can kind of work anywhere, I would say always look at, look at multiple options. That first and foremost. And I'd say the second thing, Chandler, is get the data if you can. So, and I don't, I say, I say if you can, like you could, you can buy it. It's kind of, it's expensive. Um, but if you can get access to the data, there's a bunch of free resources as well. Um, companies like Medscape, Doximity, Merritt Hawkins, they provide free uh, resources around, or summaries usually of physician salaries, which I often share with my residents. But I would say that's the second really important thing, because when you sit down, when you sit down with a hospital executive for the first time in the next few years, what's going to happen is they're going to tell you, all right, Dr. Hatch, we believe that based on your specialty, based on your experience, we're going to pay you a salary of X. And you're going to say, what about just maybe 10,000 more? No, no, no. Fair market value. Can't do that. Well, can, can I see the fair market value? No, 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 no. We don't, we don't show that to doctors. That's nonsense. That is nonsense. So basically, you're negotiating against a black box. You don't know what the upper limit is. You don't know what the lower limit is. So in the spirit of transparency with my doctors, I just show them the data. 
if your specialty, I met with, um, I met with a group of spine surgeons last night. I just show them, here's your salary from the 10th percentile all the way to the 90th percentile. The thing that I do, Johnny and Chandler, that I think is different than anyone else in the market is, and then I can do this because I'm not subject to the same restrictions and laws that hospitals are. I put the hospital revenue number right next to your salary. And that tells you a really dark story. Because when I ask my doctors and I, I say, so let's just say your salary is 300. And I say, well, how much do you think the hospital makes off of the work that you do? Uh, you know, I don't know, 500,000, it's a big number. What if the answer was 2.5 million? What if the answer was 2 million? Would you feel differently about asking for a modest living, living raise? Absolutely you would. And so that's what I show my doctors so that you have a complete picture. It may not change your perspective of whether or not you believe you should make more money, but I at least want you to be aware of what they're making off of you uh, while you're concerned about asking for a modest living wage. Yeah. That's a really good point too, that there's this kind of one-sidedness on who's providing the service in the hospital. Not necessarily that the administrators and things like that, there's a lot of stuff that they have to do, but the doctors have put in a lot of time up front uh, the time that Johnny and I are in the middle of right now, and it's not that fun. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's this tendency to kind of get out of medical school and feel like, oh, it just justifies itself. Like, obviously, the hospital is going to take care of me because I work so hard. <laughs> it doesn't work like that all the time. Yeah, you're, you're spot on. And I, I don't mean in any way to paint hospital executives in a bad light. You know, I, I worked on that side for a decade, so a lot of my friends are still there. I think the reason it comes across is a little bit adversarial. One is because of my passion around it. I'm so passionate about doctors and helping you guys understand what you're worth. But more importantly, it's because the problem is that drastic. The problem is if I walk into a job interview tomorrow, I can ask the recruiter, hey, what's the what's the range for this job? And they can, they'll tell me that. But when you guys walk in, they don't tell you the range. They don't tell you, Hey, the, the person that was in our office 10 minutes before you is making 20% more. And they've been practicing for less time than you have. You don't hear about that. I saw it. I, the data shows. So he, he, look, any of those resources I shared with you a moment ago are a treasure trove of, salary insights for physicians. Some of those insights, like the fact that women physicians who are employed make 22% less than their male counterparts, some of those facts are dire and disgusting. And it's my belief that somebody has, and look, I'm not saying I'm a savior. That's not, not my position here. But if I can fix the problem for one person and then one more person, then I think we're moving things in the right direction. And, and I'll just, I'll share with you just really briefly. I posted on my um, physician agency uh, Instagram a couple of months ago, and I had a hospital executive reach out. What I posted was that women physicians make 22% less than their male counterparts. And this executive, you know, shared their perspective on why they think that is. And basically it, it summed up to be, we're not sexist. So we don't, we don't discriminate. And cool. I, I hear you. I'm not making any accusations, 
But you also have to appreciate that the data is what the data is. So if the problem is such that it is, how do we begin fixing the problem? It's not by saying, hey, we don't discriminate. It's by saying, how can we find a more equitable way to, to allocate salaries among physicians, regardless of, of things that, outside of your skill, subspecialization, capacity, all of those things that go into measuring physician salaries? I love that. And that kind of also brings up another point that we talk about a lot, that there's, you know, no shortage of problems out there in the world. And you just got to find one that you see and just start doing your best to try to fix it. You guys talked about that in Nick Flint's interview, which I appreciate. I think it may have been Johnny who, who made that comment, but, but you're absolutely right. And then I, I apologize if I misattributed it, but you're absolutely right. I think that Starting this business, I didn't set out to start a business. I set out to fix a problem that I found. And, you know, in, in your conversation with Nick Flint, you talked about rallying the community around this problem. And that's what my job is right now, 100% of it. That's what this is, right? It's rallying people like you around this problem that I think is endemic in the institution of medicine. And doctors are on the short end of the stick. And here's the thing. You guys come out and you make a ton of money. So there's not a ton of people who are like, oh, I feel bad for doctors because they make hundreds of thousands of dollars. That's not the point. It's not about the fact they make hundreds of thousands of dollars. The point is they're not getting what they're worth because they don't have access to the resources to help them understand where they should be. So any of us, if we were, even if you were paid $100,000, if if you were supposed to be paid $120,000, you'd be frustrated, right? So it's not about how much money, it's about the fact that it's about fairness and equity, right? You should get what you deserve. And basically, my view of this, and I haven't fleshed this out, so it's still a little bit raw, but my belief is that the, the doctors who get paid the most are not the best doctors, they're the best negotiators. I believe that personally. The and I think that shows in the data too is you know, people with aggressive personalities are probably better negotiators and get those higher salaries, regardless of how good they are as a clinician. So it seems like there's kind of two problems, right? We have an institutional problem where um, you know, hospital systems, healthcare organizations want to make a profit. And so they'll try to lowball and lower physician salaries. And then we have physicians who want to be loyal and don't want confrontation. And so they take those lowball offers. What can we do on the physician side? Cause there's not really much we can do. I mean, we can advocate, right. But what can we do as physicians, as future physicians to make sure that our salaries are in the upper, upper range um, and that we are getting compensated fairly personally. What, what are some strategies we can do that way? You already mentioned one about reaching out to various different hospitals. What other techniques do you have? Yeah, that's the, that's the biggest one, right? You want to create a market. Uh, you want to create demand for your services, right? So you, the more you talk to, the more demand you create for, for what you, for the skill that you bring. Um, I would say the really important thing for physicians to know is go in prepared, know what the range is and know where you fall on that range. The other thing I would say, and, and this would apply a little bit more for practicing physicians, but know how busy you are and, and what your profitability is. 
So I know as, as when you guys come out of residency, that won't necessarily be particularly relevant. But I will ask you to think about once you start practicing, basically all of healthcare, hospital-side healthcare, is buying patients. So when doctors align with, or sorry, hospitals align with doctors, the goal is to bring your patients to our hospital. Now they're our our lives, right? So we treat them here with our doctors, and they'll come and receive services at our hospitals. So all all of healthcare, you can't say it out loud because of stark and anti kickback, but all of healthcare is about buying patients. And so for for doctors, you have to understand what the value of your services is. So because it, it is true that the value of a primary care doctor's services in salary is not the same as the value of a spine surgeon's um, value to the hospital uh, in salary. And what that means is typically on on primary care is going to be more of your foundational support um, support specialty, and they're going to feed your health system in the specialty area. So it's a really important part of the of the health system's referral base, but it, that's not reflected in salaries. So there's a very different conversation you have as a primary care doc than what you might have as a specialty surgeon. So that's really important for doctors to know as well. So if you're a spine surgeon, if you're a neuro, ortho, you name it, um, you need to think about your profitability, think about your business, think about how busy you are, think about what types of procedures that you do and the value of those procedures to the hospital. If you're a primary care, you're thinking about what is my patient base? How many patients do I touch? Because that's going to impact how valuable you appear to be to the hospital. Every hospital, what they're doing on the back end um, of a recruitment. So I'll just give you an example. If if a hospital system, let's say a CEO says, we want to recruit a gynecological oncologist, what they'll do is they'll put out their service line leaders, they'll go into the market trying to find this person, then they'll say, let's, let's hire them. That's where I came in when I worked at a hospital. And my job was to look at uh, and, and do a pro forma, which is basically a, a forecast, financial forecast of how busy is this doctor going to be? What type of procedures will they do? Are they inpatient or outpatient? Because that's going to dictate profitability. And I want to know what is going to be the financial impact for me from a hospital perspective by aligning with this doctor. So hospitals know, and they do their due diligence on the value of a doctor to them down to the dollar. So why wouldn't doctors do the same thing for themselves to, to understand what is my value when I go into a, a contract negotiation or even just going out there to put feelers out? One of the things doctors could do more of to enhance their value is every couple of years, just do a quick market check. Are you paid the way you should be? I do that with my cell phone. I do that with my car insurance. I do that with all of these different expenses, which are pretty modest, but I always look every year or two, hey, am I still, am I paying what I should be paying? And I don't think it's unreasonable for doctors to do the same thing and just say, hey, every couple of years, and that's why for my, my contract with my clients, we, uh, you guys may know, like a few years back, LeBron James had this, the big decision where he was going from Cleveland to Miami, taking, you know, and going to play with his boys. That was a that was a sentinel moment in in professional sports because LeBron James effectively dictated 
where he was going to go, what his salary was going to be, and who he was going to play with. And that's my vision for doctors, right? I want you all to have that power to say, not what do you have for me, but here's what I'm going to do for you. And here's what I'm going to ask in return, right? So it's really important to me that doctors, one, are educated, have the data, which is super important, but also talk to multiple organizations and, and regularly go back to market to find out, are you getting paid what you should? Those are just a couple of things that come to mind, Chandler. Yeah. I love the uh, sports analogies you keep making. I love feeling like a professional athlete. <laughs> so I, um, I, this is the professional sports is really integral to the business. I, um, I played basketball my whole life. I coach basketball right now. I coach high school basketball and I'm now in my sixth season at uh, one of our local high schools here. So the part of the reason, you know, I talked with a guy on Sunday, a spine surgeon who said, well, why would, why you, why hire you? And I said, my credentials are incidental to the work that I do. The reason you hire me is one, because I was on the other side of the table. So I know what they're going to say to you before they say it to you. And two, sports has been my life. So every time I talk about this, somehow it comes back to sports, right? Somehow it comes back to, man, why don't doctors have agents like athletes do? They go through the same 20, 25 years of excruciating training and, and performance, and then they get out and they make tons of money, but yet never received any education. It's the exact same. And it's, yeah, and I think a big part of why this works and why I'm the guy is because it's just such a, it, it fit like a glove when I, when I came up with the sports analogy. And even in the first, you know, few weeks of me planning this, I was even drawing out diagrams of, okay, in sports, you have your team owner, which is like the board of a hospital. Then you have your GM, which is your CEO. And you have, so, and I went down to the, down to the scouts and basically realized everybody in sports has is accountable to or advocated for by somebody except for the players. And that's where they, why they have an agent. But when you go to the doctor's side, there's no advocate for them. Do you think that um, kind of the disconnect sometimes between doctors and their ability to advocate for themselves, do you think that that contributes to physician burnout? Ooh, Physician burnout is, you guys have to be experts at everything. It is, it is a foregone conclusion that burnout is the result of that. Because not only, and, and look, so, so let's just say, doc, let's just put doctors work in a 40 week an hour box, right? Let's just say doctors work 40 hours a week. On top of that, doctors do call. They do education, they do leadership, they see their patients. So even if doctors have the luxury of having a 40-hour week, which you know that they don't, they have all of these other responsibilities. And then on top of that, what happens, Chandler, and I heard this just last week, is doctors are expected to do more with less continuously. And what that, and it typically will be pretty innocuous at first. They say, hey, we just need someone to oversee this program. It's right up your alley, so it'll be 10 hours a month. No big deal. Then they may say, well, we need you to take on responsibility or medical directorship of this 
additional urgent care clinic that we just added onto our health system. But unfortunately, it's not going to be enough work for us to justify paying you, so we're just going to ask you to keep your comp where it is. And then that, that creep becomes insidious, right? It's one more thing and one more thing. And it is inevitable that all of that is going to come to a head and result in burnout. And burnout is something that I talk with my docs often about. Because, again, it's, it's not to me, my job is not just about getting you the salary that you want. It's about you being a fulfilled doctor. And that fulfillment typically comes not just from your work, but from your personal time as well. So making sure that your priorities personally are, are put at the forefront of the work that we do. So I don't – actually, here's a good example. I have a doctor who says – Ethan, I want to work four days a week, right? So that's going to be a 0.8 FTE is what they call a full-time equivalent. And that doctor is going to make less money than they would if they worked full-time. So for me, if I were out there looking for myself, I would just say, hey, doctor, actually, you know what? This is a better deal for you, this five-day-a-week deal. I know it's not what you want, but trust me, it's going to pay you a ton of money. Uh, Then I'm not advocating for my doctor's interest. I'm advocating for my pocket. If my doctor says there's a deal worth 200 that allows me to see my kids when I want to, and there's a deal worth 250 that doesn't, if the doctor says I'm going for 200, that's where we're going. I follow my doctors because I want them to be fulfilled. And I will also do my best to be transparent with them about the benefits and burden of all of their choices. And that's, and again, like when, when you talk with hospitals, Naturally, they're going to talk in terms of their interests, where they want to grow, where they're looking to focus, where, where their competition is stiff. They don't talk about you. And so part of you know, my process when, when you come on board through the intake assessment is we just spend a, some time learning about you. What do you want out of your career as a doctor? Who do you see yourself as? And then we do some activities like force ranking, right? You know, does money come before time or does time come before money? Understanding that helps me understand and advocate for you in a more uh, comprehensive way. Those points are all important for any physician to think about, no matter how they're going to practice. Okay, do I just want to make a ton of money? Do I just want to work two days a week and have a five-day weekend every week? Or what are my goals so that my contract aligns with those goals. And I like that you spend so much time emphasizing that. I think that's very important. Ethan, this has been a great conversation. Where can people connect with you and learn more about what you are doing? Yeah, I would say first and foremost, check out the website, which is www.rmpa. That's Robert Mary Paul Adam dot C-O. So that's the place to just, landing page you'll find out about me what i do how i help doctors um, also check out the instagram it's physician agency all one word on instagram uh, and then we also have a facebook page you can probably just search rocky mountain physician agency uh, and then also post my phone number call me email me i love conversations like this so i'm stoked to hear what's on people's minds about physician contracts and compensation so always reach out to me directly because um, I, I love talking about this Well, thanks. Well, thank you. Chandler, did you have any more questions? Nope, not that I can think of. I'm going to have to go listen to some John Denver now because he keeps saying Rocky Mountains. It's stuck (laughs) in my head this entire interview. (laughs) You know, one thing I do want to share with you guys that I think your your listeners will 
feel very acutely. Um, I talk with residents quite often about student loan burdens and, and student loan debt. Um, you should know, and, and you guys are likely experiencing this in, in some phase right now, but student loans for physicians when they finish is, is right around $250,000 on average. So some might be a few bucks less than that, some are a few bucks more, but on average about 250000 By the time you guys finish paying your loans, which is, again, on average, 13 years after you finish residency, by the time you guys finish paying your loans, when you include interest, you've paid between $360,000 and $440,000. So knowing those big numbers, I think it is vitally important for physicians to do themselves the favor of, one, negotiating a salary that is going to help you chip away at that at that debt faster. But more importantly, bring the hospital or your medical group and have skin in the game with you. Have them contribute to your student loan paydowns as well. And that's very common in, in large healthcare organizations, maybe not so common in smaller medical groups or smaller community hospitals. Uh, but I would really encourage your, your listeners as they think a few years down the road to when they get out, yes, I know it's a big salary number, but it's a big debt number too. And, uh, you know, you could, by working to get your salary as high as possible, you're going to see it have that upward trajectory, which means you're going to be able to pay your debt down faster and spend money on yourself, on your family, traveling, doing the things that you want to do, as opposed to writing a $2,000 check every month. Very good advice. It's scary to think about the loan money. I, I just kind of try to put it in a little compartment in my mind. Yeah, but I, I'm with you, man. I I, uh, I know what six figures in loan debt looks like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, after an MBA and a JD, not yeah, surprised. Yeah. Ooh, yeah, I'm it. Well, thanks a bunch, Ethan. We we appreciate your time, and it's it's been a blast. So, good luck yeah, with the thank business. You so much, guys. This is great. I'm, I'm so happy to talk with you guys. Please reach out if you have questions. I'm happy to chat again, okay?